Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my channels. If you are watching me, please be aware that I do have a podcast channel that hosts all of my interviews. And if you are listening to me, please be aware that I have a video channel that has much more than just interviews on it. Not that you need more than that, but Today's guests are Dr. Deborah So and Dr. James Cantor, who are both Toronto-based sexologists or sex researchers. Dr. Deborah So has branched out of the academy or of the research domain and is a popular writer and speaker on matters of sex and including gender. Dr. James Cantor is a practicing psychologist and researcher, and today's topic is Canada's Bill C-6, which is going to criminalize conversion therapy. And this is the definition of conversion therapy in Bill C-6. Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or gender identity to cisgender, or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. For greater certainty, continues the bill, this definition does not include a practice, treatment, or service that relates A, to a person's gender transition, or B, to a person's exploration of their identity, or to its development. Now, for the following week, Canadians, or Canadian citizens, whatever you want to be called, have the opportunity to write in to the legislature or legislators and criticize or critique this bill. So I wanted to forward some criticisms of this bill by talking to two of the leading or most popular sex researchers on record about this. And that's basically what this conversation is about. So get ready, strap on in. Here is Dr. Deborah So and Dr. James Cantor. So you guys like have a doctoral relationship, right? Deborah, you were, is that what you said? Yeah, he's, he was one of my PhD supervisors. So he's like my academic father. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm probably about father number three. She had Ray Blanchard was at, uh, in the mix. So of course, you know, we all take a <laughs> day in. Uh, we, 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 we're more like older sibling, younger sibling. When, when you know, as daddy was leaving the house, then older sibling got more of the responsibility, <laughs> but he really was the daddy. My favorite, though, is, I don't know if you've seen these, James, the, the posts, the, the blog posts that some activists will write when they find that I've come from the same lineage as you guys, and they're so angry and upset and they call me all kinds of names and they think it's so evil and i'm thinking you know i think if they sat down and had a conversation with us they would see that we're all very lovely people and we don't have any sort of bad intentions i i, I get that all the time it's uh, give me 60 seconds i will give them the world it, it's uh, mm-hmm. usually if people can think or hear a sentence longer than what are we up to 280 characters <laughs> there is, i keep getting the same response 
Oh, and then they get, and then they start with, doesn't that mean? Now they're thinking on their own, they'll be fine, and just take people born with whatever it was and can't change it, and then the dominoes just fall. But that's the you know that that's the piece that don't get people don't take sex class; they take gender class. Which is really, really well. We're seeing the effects of that now. We're seeing the implications of that now. It's. Uh, I, I'm coming to think of it more as an interaction than anything else. I mean, uh, you and I see it, and of course, RC uh, uh, field sees it because uh, uh, sex and sex research is uh, is the canary in the coal mine, because so much of what we talk about is. Uh, 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 so inherent and so important to so many people that you know, and lots of people think they know what sex is, so they you know feel comfortable attacking, uh, attacking. Uh, but really, uh, the rest of the coal mine, uh, we're all being invaded by the extremism that has taken over all of society. Uh, sex has gotten hit first, but it's all of us. Nobody can have, nobody can disagree a little bit on anything. Nobody can quibble about a detail. Well, I want to do it this way. You want to do it that way. But we're working from the same basic principles. That's gone. You're either, you know, uh, you're either my idol or my enemy, and there is no agree to disagree, see nuances, see details, well, it depends, circumstances. As I say, anything that doesn't fit into a, a, a tweet, nobody cares, or at least nobody's defending. To me, it's so surreal to see how these this fighting that was going on like when I was in graduate school and even prior to that, how that has hit the mainstream now, and now it does affect everyone. And the way that sexologists had to deal with this internally before and I feel we were warning people this is what's coming and now it's here and it's it's gonna it's gonna get even worse because there isn't that other side. And even within the field there's so much intimidation. So people really aren't incentivized to speak up about it. Uh, that's true. I, I really have to agree with that. It's uh, uh, we did see it coming, but mostly it was really just it, uh, we researchers, you know, and getting into arguments, you know, at conferences or with whoever was on the conference committee if they had some uh, bone to pick. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it has indeed gone mainstream. Uh, we now say gone viral, uh, and I think that actually is the bottom line to a lot of anti-intellectualism that has taken over. Uh, the West. Uh, again, we're uh, an example of it, but uh, social media, you know, had a promise to do a lot of wonderful things, but it has brought together the lowest common denominator. Now that any idiot can say anything, every idiot is, and they <laughs> outnumber us. So it's um, really just dragged down what counts as, you know, intelligent discourse before there used to be a filter. Some can a reasonable conversation can be had over whether there should have been such a filter, but we're seeing the effect of removing it. it it's as I say, it's the lowest common denominator has just hit basement. And because they also don't have anything to lose, and I'm always amazed mm -hmm. at the fact that they often have not even read the studies. They have no idea anything about the research literature. They don't even know anything about the researcher themselves or what what the goal of understanding this area of research is it and they take pride in that they take pride in being very anti-scientific and i'm amazed that they are actually given credibility that they're given any time in terms of who should be listened to in the conversation yes and that's really my greatest uh disappointment is the grown-ups in the room haven't done their job 
Uh, it's the people who were supposed to be controlling this and maintaining this are just grabbing onto whatever the new thing is. They think it's all over Twitter. My generation knows they know th nothing about Twitter. So they very quickly believe that the Twitter world is the real world when it's the other way around. The world that they, we are accustomed to, that's the real world. This is the peanut gallery. Mm. But the people in charge, you know, and again, I can understand leaders of associations, you know, need new members, need new people in the new generation. So that's who they're marketing to. But they have given up the point of uh, uh, of uh, experts getting together in the first place to just go what's uh, with what's popular, as I said, with with the greatest masses. And that that to me is the definition of the lowest common uh, common denominator. Uh, but yeah. you're absolutely uh, uh, but you're absolutely right. I agree. It's uh, getting into law. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Uh, what you guys are talking about about the push for certain sorts of well, the power that activists have is taking root in the law. And I'm wondering. I guess I should phrase this as a question. I was under the impression that it was Bill C C six, but it might be Bill C eight. Now I just watched an interview with you, uh, Doctor So. Uh, so it's changed. It was C8 before, and then they brought it back as C6, but it's essentially the same thing. So it's about banning uh, advertisements of and uh, just conversion therapy, and there's uh, provision spe specifically for uh, it's illegal to participate in conversion therapy with children, and then they added a line about cisgender. It's illegal to uh, you know push a child towards cisgender and then they made some sort of caveats about you can explore and you can uh, participate in somebody's development of their gender identity. Do you guys know if that is activist language or if that's just polit politicians trying to do the right thing and where does that meet up with the science? Hmm. I, I think I noticed that because in the press, they're very careful to say, oh, this does not infringe upon just conversations or exploring gender. My sense is the politicians have no idea about the science and they're not particularly interested in it because I don't I don't understand why legitimate experts aren't being consulted when you look at. Well, I don't want to say anything about the experts being consulted. I'll leave that alone. But I'll just say we have really big name sex researchers in Canada. We have the world expert on gender dysphoria in children. We have multiple experts on gender dysphoria and gender identity. As far as I know, none of them have been consulted. So why is that? Because they can speak to the actual scientific literature in terms of what is best for these children. And instead, they're looking at what the... As James was saying, the popular consensus is, I think, what the what makes them look good and progressive, and I say that as a liberal, um, I don't think it's totally inappropriate that these children are being used in this way. And so we can talk a bit about the research literature in terms of how sexual orientation is different from gender identity. Uh, conversion therapy for sexual orientation does not work because... Uh, as I, you know, sexual orientation can't be changed. So if you're gay or bisexual, you can't be made to be straight. Gender identity is not the same thing because it is more flexible in children and it can change. How a child feels about their gender can change with age and development. So we see with the vast majority of kids with gender dysphoria that they're more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood. They're not going to be gender dysphoric or transgender when they get older. So it doesn't make sense for them to transition. They're more likely to desist 
as they get to puberty. So what the activists have done, which is very clever, is they have conflated sexual orientation with gender identity so that it sounds as though they're the same thing. They're both things that are cannot be changed. So therapies that aim to um, not necessarily change them, but even explore other alternatives are frowned upon. And so in the public, and you, you even see this with conservative politicians, they are afraid to say anything that could be construed as anti-conversion therapy. They'll, they'll very clearly say, I'm not against bans, uh, or sorry, they're afraid to say anything that might be construed as in favor of conversion therapy. So even when it comes to gender identity, I don't think they even know the difference, but they'll say, I am not against bans for conversion therapy. I just think we should be able to talk about this. And if you talk to any clinician who's doing this work, they will tell you they cannot do their job properly. There's no, there's no way they're having these quote unquote conversations about exploring gender, unless you're close to retirement, in which case you don't care if you get fired. And that's because of the attitude within the, uh, cons- uh, the the community of psychologists. There's pressure to not explore that or to be skeptical of gender identity. Or it's not just the law. I'm just wondering, where does that pressure come? Why can't they speak? I think they're afraid of their reputations. I think James can speak to you know what it's like being a psychologist. But um, my sense from the conversations I've had, they're afraid of their professional reputations. They're afraid of their personal reputations. They don't want to be dealing with being mobbed and ripped apart on social media. And now if it's being criminalized, who wants to potentially face five years in prison for doing your job properly? Uh, yes, exactly. A lot of this boils down ultimately to a, uh, to a, uh, a chilling effect. Uh, now, what's going on, I hesitate to say how much of this might have been a, uh, a strategy, a conscious decision, so much as a bunch of things going on at the same time that are interacting in a way that, that comes out with a really bad outcome for, uh, for everybody. Uh, now, for you know, politicians, the lay public, for the uh, uh, for people you know who are sexually atypical, you know, we went from over the years very familiarly, familiarly, and people can recite it with me. We went from you know, uh, even before my generation, the gay community, to the gay and lesbian community, to the lesbian and gay community to the lesbian, gay, bisexual community. Now we got too many. LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTT2QQIA. Right, so the idea of just tacking on transgender, transsexual to LGB, everybody just came as, well, this is the proper way to do it in order to make sure that we're including everybody. Hearts in the right place. Not wanting to exclude anybody, you know, terrific. But when we talk about, you know, what these actual communities are, there really is no LGBTT2QQIA community. There is a gay community, a lesbian community. Bisexuals isn't exactly a community. They permeate and run in and out of the others. The trans community politically is at war with the lesbian community. Take your pick. As I said, the asexuals have nothing to do with any of this. We all have in common that nobody should take for granted what our sex and love lives are going to look like because they differ from the mainstream. So there is a certain catch-allness that's legitimate, but the mistake that everybody made is the classic mistakes that, you know, human makes when confronted with, uh, with thinking about groups. Us, them. My group all the same, that group all the same. So to everybody else, LGBTQ and so on are all synonyms. It's just one great big them. So rather than, you know, if confronted, people will recite 
gender identity is different from sexual orientation, but when it comes to treatment, anti-discrimination and so on, transgender, gender identity just automatically in a lot of people's minds gets tacked on to sexual orientation, not because it's something different and should be included, but because people actually forget that this is a separate thing. Everybody is also very familiar with conversion therapy. Now going back a generation and a half where we took, you know, we, uh, 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 with uh, people who were gay or lesbian did not want to be put into treatment in order to change their sexual orientation. That was that was what people think of with conversion therapy. What this bill uh, is, what C6, uh, what C6 is, however, is to, again, combine this conversion therapy in theory for gender identity. Wait a second. That's not how gender identity works. Sexual orientation is a matter of whatever it is you have, you figure it out, you know, once it's but usually when you start experiencing sexual attractions and that's it, it does not change in adulthood in any way we can detect. That's very, very different from what unanimously 12 out of 12 studies have shown with kids who feel that they might want to live a different gender. As I say, 12 out of 12 studies is unanimous. Most of these kids, the majority of these kids, you know, three quarters ish, 80 percent ish, cease to want to live as the other sex by the time puberty hits. So if we do nothing, most of them switch. So it makes no sense to say convert. If we do nothing, most of them will change anyway, which is entirely unlike the situation with sexual orientation, where it is a stable characteristic that, you know, we can just observe and, you know, help bring forth. But people, again, well-meaning, want to treat gender identity with the same respect, but instead they're treating gender identity as if it's the same thing. And it's not. Now, again, exactly as uh, Dr. So said, the purpose with this law was to ban, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, cisgender is the goal and we're going to aim for that. No, no, no. We don't know which way this kid is going to uh, uh, turn out, although, you know, we have a balance of probabilities just from long-term research uh, on these kids. What is, you know, very foreseeable, and we're already starting to, uh, to see ed, uh, evidence of it, is anything except immediate affirmation on demand will merely be labeled conversion therapy. Now, no matter how correct the shrink was, now we're in the newspaper, now there are reports, and now you have to hire lawyers, and now you're defending yourself against, uh, uh, against attacks against your license, where the person submitting the report has nothing. It doesn't cost them. There is no blowback. There's no countersuit. They don't pay for the lawyers. The person getting attacked does. So as I say, in a setup like that, that yeah. creates a, why would anybody actually continue to practice in this area legitimately? That's what is going to cause the chill effect. Again, I understand where it's coming from and it's well intended, but it's misguided. And that's the problem uh, with it. It's uh, 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 most of these uh, 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 desires, attempts, uh, 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 activist movements are being, you know, forwarded as by definition amongst activists by people who feel the most strongly. Well, that's fine. The people who feel the most strongly are not the ones who desisted. The people who figured out that they are not cross-gendered after all don't become activists. They fade into the background, live their own lives, and 
you know, don't give the counterexample, even though we know uh, 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 over and over again that they are actually the legitimate, uh, that they are the majority case. We are treating every case as if it was the exception. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to help anybody. Is there... Is gender a stable category? Is it something that uh, we can quantify or measure in any way? Is it purely a social construct? Is it purely built out of internal feelings and the relationships between how I view myself and how other people view me? Um, Scientifically speaking, is it a thing? And is that the way that it is separate from sexuality? Is sexuality something that is measurable, that is uh, more stable? Uh, And how do you you guys how do we build the distinction between gender and, and sexuality like what's the fun, fundamental uh makeup of those categories well i mean from a brain imaging perspective because there is a lot of criticism so with my my book that just came out the end of gender and i talk about gender identity and it's interesting to see that right-leaning people and left-leaning people both depending on what your particular views are have an issue with this concept of gender and they say gender is not a thing Biological sex is a thing, but gender is not a thing. But when you look for, at, say, the scientific research when it comes to brain imaging, you look at people who are gender dysphoric, who identify more as the opposite sex, their brains are shifted in the direction of the sex they identify as. But that is also conflated with sexual orientation because in all the studies that currently exist, all the people who, who underwent scans of their brains are also gay. So they are attracted to people who share their birth sex. So if you if you have a study of trans women, they were born male, identify as female, and attracted to men. So that's considered gay from a sexological perspective. So, um, you know, there's, there's that correlation with gender nonconformity and feeling as though you're more like the opposite sex and being gay. But, I mean, I'm trying to think how else I could put it in terms of if you look at, say, uh, exposure to prenatal testosterone that masculinizes the brain. So whether someone is male or female, if they're exposed to higher levels of testosterone, they're more likely to be male typical um, in their behavior, in their interests, in terms of their peers. Um, so I, I understand the skepticism because I think now gender identity is being emphasized to the point where it's seen as more important than sex, actual sex, and this is what's actually influencing policy and that's what's affecting people's lives. And people are saying, why is it a a so-called feeling is overriding physical reality in some cases? And because that has implications then for who's allowed in particular spaces or who's allowed to call themselves, say, a woman. Um, And I understand why people find that upsetting and they're skeptical about it, but you know, I, I do think it's a real thing and we should be able to acknowledge that but at the same time be skeptical and have a conversation about situations in which we are questioning you know if you have someone who is for all intents and purposes looking male and identifying as female and saying i should be have access to female spaces well that's different from you know someone who may actually legitimately be experienced dysphoria may the process of transitioning to live as the opposite sex. I'm not sure if that really speaks to your question, but I, I just feel like it's being conflated that any sort of skepticism means we have to throw out the concept of gender identity altogether, and I don't think that's the case. Mm. The, my favorite way to uh, refer to gender, and whether it's biological or not, is uh, 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 to make an analogy with language. The brain is built to learn language, but it's not born with one either. It has to learn it. 
Now, different kinds of brain phenomena can interfere and change our ability to learn or express language, and some people are better at it than, than others. But the language itself is learned from the surroundings, even though we're, we, we have a, 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 I don't want to say we're born to learn it, but we're, we're are pretty well evolved to absorb one. Uh, that is also to say that, you know, because so much is learned, it's also quite malleable according to uh, 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 the situation in which a person is born and people are more and less gendered and people and societies can, you know, resist the little bit of a push that we're born uh, born into. But, you know, the gender differences that we observe are, you know, from culture to culture, to, well, most of them are culture to culture uh, to culture. Uh, Dr. So is exactly correct about uh, results of the, uh, the brain scans, but because there's more than one thing that can lead a person to want to live as the other gender, that too seems to be borne out, you know, in the brain scans. Uh, people who are motivated uh, uh, to want to live as the un uh, other gender kind of as an extreme form of homosexuality, kind of like they're so gay, a, a bio male who's so gay, he really will be happier living as she and as a woman. Yep, those brains match gay brains. Uh, people who have more of an interest that includes the uh, uh, the actual look, the clothing, the people with a more paraphilic interest in transitioning, that only happens to biological males. Their brains are also different, but different in a completely different way from how you know gay male brains are different from uh, straight male brains. We don't have any studies of the kids, uh, but it's. We have very, very strong reasons to believe that they will follow the same pattern of uh, of gays and lesbians in uh, in adulthood. The mystery are this new group, you know, mostly teenagers, adolescents who are coming in for the first time. And unlike the previous groups, these people are only just for the first time saying that they're uncomfortable with their gender and want to live in a different situation. Uh, these are unlike the cases that we've studied, you know, in the past where kids from the get go where even before they said it, differences in their behavior were, uh, were easily observable. Uh, we have no neurological studies and no neurological, uh, no uh, biological studies of that new pre uh, presentation. Uh, and they do uh, differ in, you know, uh, uh, in certain, you know, very certain ways from the other two better known groups. Uh, as I say, this seems to happen during adolescence. It seems only to happen to, uh, to biological females, uh, and they do not seem to respond to uh, uh, efforts to transition in the same, on average, positive way that adults who are otherwise, you know, uh, uh, without psychological uh, uh, issues develop. So this is this is quickly becoming the largest group coming in, but they don't match the other two uh, uh, the other two either. So uh, it is a uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, so they remain a bit of a mystery, and they remain uh, understudied, even though they are quickly becoming the group getting the most uh, getting the most attention. And how would and, this and, law affect them? Sorry, Deborah. Oh, I was just going to say to add to Dr. Cantor's point about, say, someone who's born male and uh, attracted to men, if they are attracted to very, very masculine heterosexual men, that can be part of what uh, motivates them to transition to female also, because very straight men, or yeah, very straight men, very masculine men are attracted to women. So, and then for the paraphilic subtype, autogynephilia, they uh, are motivated to transition to become the women that they 
find arousing. So I, I talk about all the research literature in, in chapter four of my book. But I think that's another big part of the piece that's not being talked about because, um, you know, in some cases, people will take the complete opposite extreme and say it's purely biological. It's purely about having the wrong brain sex in a person's body. And that's not fully accurate either. For how this law is going to affect them, I'm pessimistic. Uh, I mean, in theory, you know, a certain reading of the law and the language of that law, I, to me, it's doublespeak. It says two completely contradictory things. It uses terms that have no scientific meaning. Uh, this is going to be one of those things where everybody is going to interpret it to mean either what they want it to mean or what they're afraid of it meaning, and all of it's going to end up in court. You know, of course, ending up at court means some psychologist is getting sued or reported or whatever, and somebody is having to defend him and herself. So this is only going to happen in an ugly way. Uh, now, what the research demonstrates, as I say, the, the kids who are uh, 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 the kids who come in, most of them end up cisgendered by puberty. Not all of them, you know, a quarter of them, 20 percent-ish, you know, will want to transition, and we need to get them the resources to do that in a, uh, in a healthy and supportive way. Adults who are otherwise uh, mentally healthy, same thing. They do very, very well the, uh, 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 in the new gender, as the research has shown, over and over again. This middle group, the ones who are coming in for the first time in adolescence, do not appear to be responding to, you know, the first step, social transitions in a positive way. They actually, their uh, uh, other uh, uh, mental health issues that they're dealing with sometimes get worse instead of better. They feel worse about their gender instead of better. What, although the research is, uh, is still quite, uh, quite new, what it looks like is going on is that these are unhappy people with issues going on that need addressing. But rather than that issue actually being gender and they're now dealing with the gender, they've kind of picked gender as the issue, are now blaming everything on that, expecting the world now to change around them to support the gender, that new gender. And when it does, nothing gets better. So from their point of view, that was their last shot. This was, a, you know, again, an attempt to shield themselves from whatever psychological issues they're going under. And it was an attempt to, it's not my fault, it's the rest of the world. And when that doesn't fix things, right now they feel even more hopeless and helpless than they did before. Now, what the mental health profession needs to do is to, you know, help them address the actual issues, which is not actually about gender. Gender is kind of being a, a shield. And in these days, with everybody paying so much attention to it, a successful one in a way, people treat them nicer, but they still aren't getting what they need. So again, this largest group, the group coming in during adolescence, they need what the law kind of wants to call exploration. But that doesn't mean that the activists are going to say this is exploration. A legitimate psychologist saying the scientific literature says these people don't do so well after transition. Let's see how comfortable we can make them in their natal gender. Well, to an activist who's trying to get rid of anything that smells like conversion therapy, taking somebody, even just questioning their gender and helping them become more comfortable in the born gender, well, they're going to make an argument that that's conversion therapy. And here we go to the courts. Yeah. 
And so, right, and any psychologist or any professional, any licensed mental health professional who's able to provide those services, you know, knows that. So the ability to find such people is going to evaporate. The, as I said, we've got, so that evaporates. Nobody wants to be associated with it because nobody wants to have to defend a foreseeable lawsuit if, you know, if and when it hits, uh, goes viral. So we actually have these people getting no other side of the story, not being uh, given what the full uh, uh, what the science says, and only the parts of the science that you know activists want people to hear. And so we're actually aiming these people to a worse outcome, thinking we're doing it better for them. Really, what uh, when what we're doing is best for the activist self concept. It was best for me, says the activist. Therefore, it's best for everybody. Hmm. But it's not. The activists are the people who the feel who feel the most extremely, by definition. But for everybody else, it's you know a more complicated story, and we're not being allowed to ask, never mind answer, more complicated stories. I see it being the end of gay children because if you have a child who is unhappy with their body, or is extremely gender atypical, and a parent takes that child to a mental health professional, if that professional has no choice but to affirm and facilitate transitioning, then the child. So if I, I often give the example of a, of a little gay boy who, well, a little boy who is gender atypical, gender dysphoric, likely to grow up to be a gay man uh, and attracted to men. If that boy transitions to female when she grows up. She's going to appear to be a straight woman. So, I mean, when I about I grew up in the gay community, all of my gay friends would say that they wish they had been girls when they were younger, and it's just astounding to me. I mean, even if you like, as Dr. Cantor saying, people will latch on to gender as an explanation for a lot of different things, especially right now because it's it's I hate to say it, but it's a hot topic. And so if anyone who says they have issues about their gender is going to be facilitated down this path, it's just not appropriate. And and I don't it's gonna be really, really unfortunate when we see the aftermath of what this is gonna be like with people who do change their minds and they're going to have to live with in some cases permanent, irreversible side effects. Is there any other law to your awareness that uh, is making such an intrusion, such a blunt intrusion into the counselor's office, into uh, psychotherapy or psychology? Excellent question. No. And I'm, uh, I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm surprised that the mental health associations haven't uh, if this were any other issue, telling mental health professionals how to perform mental health tasks, there would have been hell to pay. It would have absolutely blown up. Now imagine, and I will take a legitimate example, uh, psychoanalysis, ancient Freudian technique, which is nothing but malpractice, study after study after study, this is indistinguishable and sometimes uh, uh, inferior to placebo. That we're allowed to do. Rorschach blots, same kind of ancient nonsense, but that we're allowed to do. So if anybody ever were going to enter into law, what kind of treatments are permissible or not permissible? Of course, there's only one legitimate line to use, those which have demonstrated success. Well, that's not this, and it's not being uh, uh, used, you know, evenly, you know, over the cross of what's available. Right, this is politics in its purest form. So to me, that kind of opens a door, okay, 
is this just psychology? Is this all of medicine? Is this, you know, we either, you know, start legislating, you know, what appropriate therapy is or we don't. Once we're going to start legislating what good therapy is, okay, is it now time for a committee to start which of these things should be taken out? The ones that do harm are the psychodynamic, the psychoanalytic, you know, and a, a lot of these old, you know, non-empirical techniques. But that's, so as I say, the, the idea of legislating what is a therapy and what's not, to me, that, that that's a, 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 a Pandora's box that uh, has not gotten, uh, gotten any conversation. And I'm a little bit surprised that it, I, I, well, I guess I'm mixed over whether it had or hadn't, or why it hadn't hadn't. I mean, it's crazy because at least in those cases, it would be based in the science. But in this case, it's purely activist pressure because it is these this kind of a bill is anti-scientific. It doesn't make sense if you actually look at the research and what the research backs. I know that there's a week left for public comment. I don't know the entire mechanism of Canadian government, but I know that it's open for public comment for the next week. Um it seems that you're both against the bill. Uh, what are your best arguments that you could uh, share with people or that uh, you would encourage them to make uh, as Canadian citizens to uh, try to argue uh, this law to be changed, to be more amenable to actual, uh, you know, protecting children, uh, homosexuals and uh, non-typical gendered folk? I would say don't be afraid of being called transphobic. Don't be afraid of being called any of the phobics or any being called a bigot or hateful because that's the reason why this ideology continues to permeate because good people are afraid, understandably, and because they are empathic. And I think on some level, maybe they even have bought the lies that they're being told by these groups that this is the best way forward for these kids or that these children are at high risk of suicide if they do not transition, which is not true because that statistic that often gets thrown around applies to adults, does nothing to do with children. Um, and I think I find also when you actually have conversations with people and explain, I mean, this this has been a really great uh, discussion. If you explain the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity, most people just have no idea that they're different. And once they become aware of that and they realize that they're being uh, improperly conflated in this way, then it's like a light bulb goes off and they suddenly see it in a way that they didn't see it before. And once they do see it that way, I think they start to question a little bit more and more and more and they start to see how deep this goes and how many tenets about gender that are being promoted so widely are actually really inaccurate, ideological, anti-scientific, as I said. So... That would, I think, be the biggest thing because I don't think most Canadians are actually in favor of this bill or of the of young children transitioning. Most people think it's completely inappropriate that children are way too young um, and that also the government doesn't have a place stepping in to make decisions like this. Me personally, I mean, I've been asked about this. I have less of an issue if the government were to ban conversion therapy for sexual orientation for minors. I do think adults, as much as I don't agree with conversion therapy for sexual orientation, I think I don't like the idea of the government telling adults what they can and can't do. But I, I have definitely much more um, less of an issue if it's about minors because for children, they don't have a say. It's the parents that are going to be the ones making the decision. But for gender identity, that's completely different. And yeah, I, I think just don't be afraid. 
because more people than you realize agree with you and are not on board with this. Yes, I would agree. Uh, uh, more specifically, that uh, the social media world is not the world, but that's where everybody's getting their opinions from. They're forgetting that you know their actual own critical thinking skills are genuine critical thinking skills. Uh, what we've lost is uh, people thinking for themselves instead of just you know reiterating whatever it is that they hear, whatever rumor, whatever gets themselves the most retweets. People are after you know looking or seeming popular rather than getting the right uh, uh, getting the right answer. Uh, I agree that uh, had the law not included gen uh, gender identity, at least it would have been consistent with the uh, with the science. I think it's a little bit bizarre to uh, again pass specific laws against specific therapies, but for giving that you know at least you know the idea of uh, conversion therapy for sexual orientation, uh, the, the the inappropriateness of uh, 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 conversion therapy for sexual orientation is very well, uh, well demonstrated and not for gender uh, identity. Uh, I also agree with Dr. So that, you know, the average person, you know, tell them, all right, that the age of consent to have sex, 16. The age of consent to change sex, six? All right, a six-year-old appreciates what being castrated will mean permanently. Now, six-year-olds are not getting castrated. Rather, six-year-olds are being put on a social path where they don't even realize that there was another alternative by the time they hit puberty. They're just doing, you know, going to the doctor like everybody else goes to the doctor. They just have this birth defect that they have to go extra times for. You know, so it, it, it is turned into a non-issue for, uh, for a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of these kids. Uh, so as I say, if it were just sexual orientation alone, at least that would be consistent with the, uh, with the science. Uh, oh, the uh, only other difference between this law is that uh, this particular proposal is specific to people under 18. So a person over 18 could still attempt to undergo a, a conversion therapy for whatever reasons. Uh, interestingly, I don't know, I would have to go back and check, I don't know how much of the research literature on conversion therapy, even for sexual orientation, was actually about kids either. Hmm. Most of it really was about adults trying to use traditional psychotherapy, behavioral therapy, and so on, uh, uh, sometimes religious conversion. I don't know how much of it, uh, how much of that even com uh, uh, comes in for under 18 year olds. Is conversion therapy even prevalent enough to warrant a law, or is that being resurrected in order to push this uh, newfangled uh, attacking gender onto it? The, the latter. It, it hasn't been talked about, hasn't been published, really, in, uh, in, in almost a generation. Yeah. Uh, the phrase has been, you know, reused in this new context, as I said, with people uh, uh, using uh, any care other than immediate affirmation on, uh, on demand and just labeling it conversion therapy. When, you know, the great majority of people who come into clinics are unsure. They don't know. They don't know what they'd be converting from or to. So, again, from the point of view of both therapist and client, how is this conversion? We don't know where it is that we're going. But from the point of view of an activist with a very definite idea of where things could be going, sorry, that's close enough and we ban it. My sense is there are people who are still practicing conversion therapy 
therapy for sexual orientation. So I get that side of concern, but this more aggressive push and to shut down any dissenting voices, even those coming from legitimate scientific experts, I think it's that same mindset of the activists bullying people because they have a very specific goal that they want to meet. And so they're basically trying to shut down everybody, just knock down everyone who stands in the way of that. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I think we devoted enough to the serious topic, and I would uh, feel bad if I didn't, since I have you both on. Could you guys share some really crazy sex research stories, like one or two, like the, like the, your most favorite? I don't, well, number, what can I say? I don't like to talk about anyone without getting their permission first, so I'm trying to think what I could, what I could say. I will say, you know, I'm super grateful for, for Dr. Cantor's mentorship. He, he definitely, um, you know, I hope I've done him proud. And I, I remember a lot of the conversations we had. I remember actually my very first media interview. And this was, I think I was second year PhD. And I, I called him from the lab because we had a meeting. And I said, and he said to me, do you feel like you're going to throw up? And I said, yeah, I do, because <laughs> I was so nervous. And then he just, you know, helped me calm down and it, it went fine. And that was just, that was a 10 minute live radio interview. And I thought I was going to die, but it, it, I survived it. And so, mm. yeah. Well, that's a calming that's sex research or story. <laughs> wasn't what I was asking for, but it's pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I I remember that uh, that fondly, and it's an important point, actually, for sex researchers, especially, and I would add uh, experts and mental health professionals uh, in general. Uh, we as a culture are too timid. Uh, people who don't know anything talk an awful lot, and the experts are awfully quiet. Part of that is time. Part of that is that, you know, we, we get held responsible for things that we say in public in a way that the lay public doesn't. So, you know, we have a license to defend and, you know, somebody comes at us with death threats. How are you supposed to defend yourself? I, this isn't a faculty meeting where you can call campus security. Right. How do you maintain a level of professionalism under death threats? And so, you know, it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated question. And the way things are set up, I do not think is in the uh, uh, is in the public uh, interest. Hmm. The wackiest one. I can't say that. I have a wacky memory of sex research itself, so much as the situations that we run into, you know, clinical cases, stories that uh, uh, clients or the media bring us because they need, you know, they're trying to understand it. It's the reality of the world that's, uh, uh, that's funny, that's interesting, that that's fascinating and blows people's minds so much as the, okay, now let's take a brain scan of it and, you know, yeah. uh, uh, take a sample and, uh, and look, piece, uh, look at pieces. If I had to pick a phenomenon that I found the most fascinating, uh, it would be uh, apotemnophilia. <laughs> Is that like the fear of having sex with apple pie? <laughs> no, this is philia, not phobia. <laughs> These are people who are, uh, there exist people, you know, who are attracted to, you know, absolutely any kind of human form. And now and then there are people who are uh, preferentially, they want to have sex with an amputee. They are uh -huh. mo more turned on by amputees than by any other physical form. That's called a crotomophilia. 
there also exists its inverse rather than having the hots for an amputee they get turned on by the idea of being an amputee they will get a wheelchair they will you know sit on one leg so it looks like what uh, one of their uh, legs is uh, is amputated they they will masturbate you know into a mirror looking at you know one hand behind themselves so they look like they're amputated right what in the brain could explain that that to me is fascinating uh, and the reason that that i think uh, uh, why i like that is you know it's a very very rare phenomenon but if we unlock that one hmm. i think a lot of the other atypical sexualities will come out uh, uh, come out of it you know the people who you know are attracted to women versus the people who are attracted to being women the people who are attracted to children versus the people who are attracted to being a child the diapers and infantilists and so on mm-hmm. there's something there's a clue in that, you know, unexplored territory, which I think will tell us a lot about male anyway, about how human sexual interests work in the brain. So that one, that one gets me. My, my favorite thing about having been a sex researcher is that so many people will approach you with their personal questions. It doesn't matter where you are, like not just strangers on the internet as part of my job, but if I'm at dinner or if I'm at someone's birthday party or any anywhere, they will come up to you and, and quietly ask you questions. And I love that because I, I love hmm. being able to impart some wisdom, but also just that people feel comfortable to do that. And also that, I mean, sex is such a huge part of our lives. And I, I really try so much to remove the stigma that comes along with talking about sex you know i'm happy to talk about sex anywhere um and i am grateful you know to dr cancer and the other mentors i've had from sexology because they really helped instill that in me too that there's nothing shameful talking about sex so whether you're out in public or you're in in the bedroom you should be able to talk about it like any other subject it's not a big deal I just want to plant the seed that you two might want to do a short video a series called Unsolved Sex Mysteries. I think it would be a <laughs> big hit. Uh, solved Sex Mysteries would be much, much shorter. <laughs> I'll, I'll start pitching it. <laughs> well, thank you both for your time, and uh, thanks for all the work that you guys do and how open you guys are to communicate uh, to me and, and through me to everybody else, and uh, you guys are doing wonderful work. Deborah, your book is on sale right now, The End of Gender, and James, uh, I'll plug your blog. Do you have anything else that you uh, want to plug, or either of you want to uh, pony up nope. any extra That's media? That, uh, my uh, comments specifically on Bill C6 are already up on my blog, sexologytoday.org. Uh, dot, uh, dot and oh, if I could tilt the camera, you would see the piles of paper on, the, on my couch behind me, which will become a book. Oh, we see it. And then for mine, I have nine myths. I did talk a little bit about, uh, did I go through the contents? I think I did when, when you interviewed me and Abigail Schreier. But if your audience wants to see, they can go to my website, drdebrasso.com slash book. I have the nine myths listed there. Audiobook was read by me, and you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere you get books. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I hope you guys have a happy Halloween, if you're into that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm working on my costume. Wait, do you have like diagrams and charts and stuff? Do you uh, plan it out to the? Hang on, you, you, you'll notice. Do you sew it second. yourself? I would. I can see you being a seamstress, actually. Uh, seamstress. Uh, no, I, I'm not nearly 
Yeah, what, what is the masculine form of that? That, that no, not nearly uh, that talented. Where's the button for full screen? I'm one of those people that never dresses up for Halloween, and people would get so mad at me. Who your uh, like your family or like your friend, friend your whole no, peer friends, group? Yeah. A peer group, pretty much peer group. If you go to a Halloween party and you're the one person not dressed up in a costume, people get very upset. Wait, you'd go to parties without dressing? Not even like a tiara or something Nothing, like that? Or, no, or bandana. <laughs> wow, I'm a grown woman. Why am I gonna dress up? <laughs> I'm. A, I'm. That's just me. I will wear all black. Well, all black is Halloween enough for me. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.